Okay, while you guys are still sitting down, just a quick announcement because I've had a few people ask me this. Your labs start at the scheduled time in the schedule. I know last term we started a little early with your labs because we had more structures to cover, but whatever your master schedule says, that is the time we start at. Please keep in mind that there's a lot of you and we have a small space to feed you through, so be a few minutes early. Arrive 10 minutes to the starting time. But we're not going to start early. It's as the schedule says. Okay. Alrighty. So, when we're talking about the innervation to the, to the pelvic organs, this is both female and male. It's just because the female has more structures, more things are affected in this case. We have a difference in the transmission of pain fibers from the pelvic or organs above and below something that is known as the pelvic pain line. Now, to give you a brief introduction on what the pelvic pain line is, is it's an imaginary line that corresponds somewhat to the coverings of the peritoneum. And I've drawn the blue line in here for you to indicate where that line is. Okay. So, the upper portion of the bladder, majority of the uterus, and the beginning portion of the rectum is all above this pelvic pain line. And the significance of this line, or the clinical significance, is that the pain fibers, or the visceral afferents, above the pain line will travel as per usual with the sympathetic nerves. And in this case, we'll travel via our hypogastric plexus. And it's referred to the T10 to L1 regions, so they will eventually go via our lumbar splanchnic nerves. Okay. So they follow the sympathetics all the way back. Below the pelvic pain line, It's different because the pain fibers in this instance travels with parasympathetic. And the parasympathetics come directly from our pelvic splanchnic nerves. And then, of course, it's always important to remember that the lowest portion of the vagina is going to be supplied by a somatic nerve. It's female repro. We have to be complicated, right? It's all right. Okay. So... We go over this again. I'm going to do it a second time just because this is an important concept and we really want you to be familiar with this. I'm not saying it only occurs in the female. It's just easier to explain in the female because there's a lot more structures involved. So the pel pelvic pain line is this blue line here. 
that demarcates where the um, change happens in terms of how our visceral afferents, specifically pain fibers, are transmitted. So above the pelvic pain line, they're going to travel with the sympathetic nerves. And these sympathetic nerves come from our T10 to L1 lumbar splanknings. These nerves travel via the inferior hypogastric plexus. That's how they get back up there. Below the pelvic pain line, we have the visceral efferent or pain traveling with the parasympathetics. The parasympathetics, in this case, comes from the pelvic splanchnic nerves. Now, when we talked about the cavernous nerves during the previous lecture, we talked about the pelvic splanchnic nerves contributing to the plexus, and we talked about the inferior hypogastric plexus also contributing down there. Now, as the inferior hypogastric plexus travels down from the abdomen, the pelvic splanchnic nerves will join it. And that will form several sub plexuses. Okay, please keep that in mind. All right. The lower quarter of the vagina has somatic pain fibers. And these travel via the pudendal nerve. Okay. Now in terms of the rest of the vagina, there's some discussion as to what fibers it has and this and that. We're not going to get into that, but the fibers, the visceral afferents from the vagina will travel with the parasympathetics because it's below the pelvic pain line. Okay, good. Ooh. Right. Which organ are we talking about? We're talking about the uterus. The body of the uterus. Body of the uterus is above or below the pelvic pain line. 
It's above the pelvic pain line. So the visceral afferent is going to travel with sympathetics. That knocks out V, D, and E. Right, so how do we decide is it C or A? Do we have sympathetic fibers in the pudendal nerve? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Remember, the skin of the perineum also requires sympathetic innervation. So the pudendal nerve does carry uh, sympathetic fibers. But where is the pudendal nerve? It's way, 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 way below. All right. So sympathetic fibers in the inferior hypogastric plexus. That's the only possible answer. Do I have parasympathetic fibers in the inferior hypogastric plexus? Yes. At some point, this will be a mixed plexus. Right. As it comes down from the abdomen, from the abdomen it will be mainly sympathetic. But once the pelvic splanchnic nerves have joined it, it will have parasympathetic fibers. Okay. Yes. Um, it's mostly the area that is below or uh, external to the perineal membrane. Okay. That's the kind of easiest way to demarcate it. And that division sort of varies, but it's definitely the lower quarter. All right. Let's talk about male internal organs. We've talked about the external organs, so we've discussed the penis already, we've discussed the muscles around it. You already know about the bladder, but we've got our different aspects of the bladder here, just the different surfaces. Why the different surfaces? Because you need to know the relationship of the bladder with the prostate and the seminal vesicles. Okay, that's a very important landmark. Landmark, very important relationship. Also, we have here, uh, just deep to the pubic symphysis, we have what is known as the retropubic space. And that retropubic space is extremely important because it allows for movement and it allows for structures to pass through, specifically veins. And you can see here, we have a nice venous plexus within that space. We're also going to talk about the ductus deferens. Yes, we'll touch on this the uh, testes, but the details are done in histology, so we're not going to go over them again. The bladder here, prostate, and the seminal vesicles. And then we're also going to look at some really nice images that show you this um, on, and their relationships and as they change as you move from one point to the next. So the testes are within the scrotum. And when we talked about the perineum, we mentioned the scrotum and the structure of it. Even though the testes are found outside of the body, because of their development, their blood supply, and their lymphatic drainage, they're considered part of the internal organs. Okay. They develop in the abdomen, and we're going to talk through the process um, during the next two lectures. Their lymphatic drainage and their blood supply are all related to the lumbar region. What is the function of testes? They produce sperm and they store sperm. 
after puberty. And the reason why they're located outside is because the temperature needs to be carefully regulated. They can't be too hot, they can't be too cold, because the cells that are developing are very sensitive to these kind of changes. Okay. Coming from the testes, as you can see here, that structure there is the epididymis. And at the end of the epididymis, at the tail of it, we have the formation of the ductus deferens which is this tubular structure here. Now, when you go into the lab and you open up the inguinal um, station and you look at the spermatic cord, within the spermatic cord you will find one structure that is sturdier, more obvious than anything else, and that is the ductus deferens. It is a muscular tube. Okay. It travels through the spermatic cord, through the inguinal canal, and along the lateral aspect of the superior bladder wall towards the posterior aspect, where eventually it will form a ampulla. The ampulla is just a small enlargement, and you'll see that very nicely on the images. And that ampulla will join with the duct of the seminal vesicle, which you can see here, to form what is known as the ejaculatory duct. And the function of the ductus deferens is to transport the sperm from the testes to the ejaculatory ducts and eventually into the urethra. Now we've talked about the ductus deferens coming in, forming the ampulla, which is a nice distended area, and joining with the duct of the seminal vesicle, which is here. Now this is a posterior view of the bladder, and you'll see this in the lab. We have beautiful examples of this. The seminal vesicles are paired glands, and they sit on either side on the posterior surface of the bladder. That means you can palpate them through the rectum. They join the ampulla and they form the ejaculatory duct. And the seminal vesicles are responsible for producing a high fructose fluid. And this constitutes 60% to the volume, volume of semen. Now, if we look into the prostate here, and we're going to look at the prostate in a little bit more detail, but there you can see the seminal vesicle. There is the posterior aspect of the bladder. We're moving towards the neck of the bladder. And that there is the ejaculatory duct. And you can see that the ejaculatory duct passes through the prostate into the prostatic urethra. Now, when we look at the prostatic urethra on a coronal section, you'll see very nicely where that drains into. Looking at a... Um, vesiculogram. Again, basically what has happened here is contrast medium have been introduced. We can see here the ductus deferens. We can see that it's patent. We can see the ampulla. And we can see the seminal vesicle. And here, very, very nicely, the formation of the ejaculatory duct. Now, these glands can become infected or inflamed, 
and then they will enlarge in size and the um, contrast media will obviously give you a bigger picture. Okay. There we have all of our little labels. Now looking at it from a cross-sectional view, this is femoral head, so it gives you an indication of where we are. The urinary bladder, the rectum here, and there's a seminal vesicle. And this is an example of seminal vesicles that are inflamed. You can see how large they are, but it's a very nice picture to show you the relationship to the bladder. Okay. Looking at it from a slightly different view, here we can see the vertebral bodies. Again, we can see um, small opening on the rectum, and there are the seminal vesicles. This is more of a coronal section that we're looking at here. In this case, quite enlarged. Okay, and the answer is seminal vesicle. Okay, I didn't have to tell you what the other ones produce. Why? Because if the seminal vesicle produces 60%, then the rest is less. Okay, why is this important to know? Because if something goes wrong with the other components, yes, in histology you'll learn about the constituency of these, all of these factors have an influence on fertility. The fluid level, the cell integrity, the constituency of the fluid, as well as the, um, the total volume, which is fluid, as well as cells. All right, the prostate has a little bit more to say about it. Location-wise, it is found at the base of the bladder, or the neck of the bladder, the, base, the neck of the bladder. And it is inverted, it's a sort of triangular-shaped structure with the base, so the broadest aspect of it, against the bladder. Now, you might want to add this label onto your slide, is that just above the prostate, we have the location of the internal urethral sphincter. Now, you talked about this in CPR, 
but it's important to remember that it's there and what kind of innervation it carries. Now, the interesting part about the prostate is that it starts off as a very small structure. It's about the size of an almond, and it gradually increases in size, starting at puberty, under the influence of a hormone known as DHT5. It's normal for the prostate to enlarge with advanced age, or advancing age. Okay. We're going to talk about when that process gets too much and how to deal with it as well. So the apex, or the most narrow portion, is at the hiatus of the pelvic diaphragm. So where that levator ani is, um, comes together, where it forms that urogenital hiatus, the apex of the prostate gland will be right at that point, and within it, it contains the prostatic urethra. Very importantly, the posterior aspect lies very closely to the rectum, so again, it can be palpated through this. Don't forget the location of the seminal vesicles, which are just superior to it, and the ejaculatory ducts, which pass through the glands. Now, knowing where those ejaculatory ducts are helps us actually divide the prostate into different regions. So first, we're going to look at a few pictures. I think these are very nice um, images, or MRI images. You can see the rectum. This here is the bladder, the pubic symphysis, and the prostate is what you can see mainly at this point. And of course, we have the penis here as a, as a, a landmark. So as we move through the images, you'll see gradually the seminal vesicle becomes more and more visible. So if you keep your eyes on this, again, we still have prostate mostly here. You can see the ejaculatory duct just a little bit there. As we move through, now we start to see seminal vesicle. Look at the change in location. We're moving more towards the superior aspect, and there's a seminal vesicle. The prostate gland becomes less um, less large, becomes smaller. And here you can clearly see the relationship between the prostate gland and the seminal vesicle. Keep in mind this relationship to the rectum, which stays there the entire time. Okay, I really like these images because it shows you nicely where the relationships are. So when we're looking at the internal structure of the prostate, um, we have several really good landmarks. The first one is, of course, we cut through it in a transverse section. We can see the prostatic urethra. And you can see that it's sort of half-moon shaped with this um, raised area in the posterior aspect. This here is the posterior aspect. There are the ejaculatory ducts. And this raised area is known as the seminal colliculus. Colliculus means little hill. So it's a little raised area, a little hill or a little bump that demarcates the location where the ejaculatory ducts will open. And on either side of this seminal colliculus, we have the openings, multiple openings, of the prostatic ducts. The prostatic gland has multiple little openings into the same area. Now, if you look at the gland like this, and you'll do it um, in histology as well. We have the capsule here. 
nice encapsulated gland. And if you look at the anteriormost portion, there's not really much glandular tissue. It's mostly stroma, mostly um, connective tissue. Towards the posterior aspect, we start to have more glands, we have more ducts, and then, of course, we also have the ejaculatory ducts. Just looking here at the uh, coronal section, we can again see our internal urethral sphincter, and to the apex of it, we can see the bulbourethral glands. There's the perineal membrane. And, of course, the bulb of the penis right here, just to give you guys a little orientation. So we can divide the prostate into, in two different ways. We can divide it into anatomical lobes or into anatomical zones. And the anatomical zones really relate better to the, the, the disease processes and the things that can affect the, pro the prostate. So the anatomical lobes are straightforward. We have two lateral. We have an anterior. And then we have this region that is posterior to the urethra, further subdivided into two. And the subdivision is made by the ejaculatory ducts. We have the median portion, which is close to the seminal colliculus. And then we have the posterior portion, which is the most posterior aspect. If we use the zones, we can look here that the anterior zone is pretty much synonymous with the anterior lobe. The peripheral zone, which travels around, incorporates the lateral lobes as well as the posterior lobe. And then we have this area here, which is known as the central zone. And that basically surrounds the me uh, part of the median and part of the posterior lobe. The transitional zone is really a small zone around the urethra and then the directly around the urethra is a even smaller zone known as the periurethral zone. Now when we talk about benign prostatic um, changes versus Malignant prostatic changes, the zone that is affected will be different. And this is why we break it down in this way. So how do we find out if there's a problem with the prostate? Okay, first of all, we can do a test known as the PSA test, which is the prost uh, prostatic-specific antigen. And this, if it's elevated, will tell us that the prostate has some changes to it. Okay. Now, depending on whether it's a benign or a malignant um, increase in size, the PSA reading will be different. So PSA is normally produced in the prostate locally. However, we don't expect to find PSA in high levels in serum. And that is the differentiation between having a problem with the prostate versus having a normal prostate. Okay. Now we can palpate the prostate through the rectum. And this will indicate an increase in size and a change 
in that glandular, glandular consistency. If you think about any gland, glands tend to be somewhat soft. If you compress them, they give away easily. However, with some of the changes with the prostate, we will find that the digital rectal exam will reveal that it's hardened structure or sometimes nodular. And that would give an indication of how the what changes have occurred as well. Keep in mind that you can also palpate the seminal vesicles. In the female, we can also do a, re a, a digital rectal exam. But it all depends on the situation. What can be palpated? You can palpate the posterior wall of the vagina. You can even palpate the cervix in the female as well. So you can do this exam on both male and female, but they'll give you different structures. Right, so when we're talking about benign prostatic hyperplasia, this is an example of it. You'll see the urethra becomes um, encroached, it becomes smaller. And it mostly affects our transitional and paraurethral zones and the median lobes. So we've given you both the anatomical zones and the anatomical lobes here to give you kind of a better idea of what is affected. Because of the location that is damaged, it causes an obstruction to the urethra. And on digital rectal exam, the prostate feels very bulky. Now this t telling whether it's bulky or something else comes with experience, of course. In prostatic cancer, which is, of course, the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men, the peripheral zone and lateral lobes are the ones that are affected. So you can see the difference here, that here we have mostly our glandular portion being affected. Prostatic cancer, sadly, some is, is usually asymptomatic. And this is why the digital rectal exam is indicated once men reach a certain age. Same as with the pap smear in um, our female patients, above a certain age, that becomes a routine thing during any phys physical exam. On digital rectal exam, the prostate feels hard. It's been described to be almost like a rock. And this is also, again, which parts are being affected. Now, this is a very nice image of benign um, prostatic hyperplasia. There you can see the prostate, the rectum here. There is the puborectalis muscle, just to give you a little bit of, of orientation. And the urethra there is barely visible. Okay. But we can do something about it. And one of the ways in which uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia is treated is via something known as a transurethral resection of prostate, or TERP. Okay, so what do they do? They put a scope through the urethra, pass it all the way into the prostatic urethra, and basically scrape away the hyperplasia, or the hyperplastic tissue. Now, of course, it leaves a little space within the prostate, but whatever was not affected by the disease process is, or, or the hyperplasia rather, is left behind. 
Now, can you guys remember what lies directly superior to the prostate? The internal urethral sphincter. We don't want to damage that. Because if we damage that, it's going to stop working. Okay, we want to make sure that the internal urethral sphincter remains functional. So you have to be very careful when you do this procedure. Something else that can happen if we have a problem with our um, urethra. You guys, I'm sure, remember this case from term one. We can also have a tear in the urethra between the prostate and the bulb of the penis. We can have a tear in the urethra, usually due to some sort of injury. And what is then explained, or the sign that you feel on the digital rectal exam here is then explained as a high-riding prostate. So instead of being able to find the prostate in the normal position, starting um, at the inferior edge and being able to feel most of the gland, what you would feel is the prostate gland is higher than usual and angled slightly more posteriorly. You can actually feel the um, apex rather than what you would normally feel along the posterior aspect. Okay, just another quick question. Okay, let's have a look. There we go. All right, so what was the hint in this question? He underwent transurethral resection okay, of the prostate. I should have said prostate. But BPH is benign prostatic hyperplasia. So the insides of the prostate was scraped away, and the chances of damaging the external urethral sphincter is very slim. Also, would say, what kind of muscle, voluntary or involuntary? Voluntary muscle, yes. Pubococcygeus muscle, where is that? It's further to the periphery. It's more lateral, yes. Transverse perineal muscle, where is that? Yeah, it lines the free border of our perineal membrane. 
And of course, the answer, internal urethral sphincter. Okay. Also here, we have an intermittent leaking of urine. It's not a constant leaking. It also indicates that the problem is probably not a somatic muscle, but rather an involuntary muscle. All right, and of course we have to talk about the blood supply. Now remember, we said the blood supply, although similar, there's vast differences between male and female. In the male, we always have an inferior vesicle artery. That's one of the differences. One of the other differences is that we have both a vesicular venous plexus as well as a prostatic venous plexus. So instead of having a lot of arterial interconnections, we now have venous in interconnections. Okay. These venous interconnections communicate with the vertebral plexus, specifically the internal vertebral plexus also known as the plexus of Batson. This is a valveless system and unfortunately provides a very easy way of metastasis from the prostate to the brain. One of the most common locations of prostatic cancer metastasis is the brain. And this is the reason. It's because I have a venous plexus connected to another valveless venous plexus, which is connected to the venous plexuses in the cranial cavity. Okay. Yes, there can be other ways of spread. There can be some seeding. There can be a little bit of um, lymphatic spread as well. But the most common mode of spread for prostatic cancer is venous. And when you get to pathology, you'll learn about all the different types of ways in which cancer can metastasize and which organs fall within the grand category of each of those. Now, those of you with the printed notes, you need to make a little correction for me. Because the prostatic plexus and the internal venous plexus um, of the vertebral canal are connected, the cells can spread directly. And this is just to show you how they're connected. So we have here the prostatic plexus. And if you remember that the dorsal vein, superficial dorsal vein of the penis actually drains into that plexus. From there, we have two connections one going to the internal iliac vein. And within that connection, we have junctions towards the internal venous plexus. So first the external venous and then the internal venous plexus. What you see here is mostly the external venous plexus, but it travels all the way up along the vertebral column. It's a valveless system. It can travel very easily and is the most common route for prostatic cancer metastasis. And this is one of the reasons why it is so important to pick it up early and to manage it. All right, so let's talk about the lymphatic drainage of the male. 
I know I have a picture of the female up here. Um, because it has the same basic pattern. The testes drain to the lumbar nodes. Why? Because of its blood supply and embryonic development. Everything else drains into the iliac nodes. One difference is that it drains mostly into the internal iliac nodes in the male. Can you guys remember where the um, lymphatic drainage of the bladder go? This is a little bit of cumulative stuff. The external iliac. Okay. The external iliac. So this is one pelvic organ that sort of acts out of character. The bladder drains into the external iliac nodes. Right. As always, we have to talk about innervation. Now, we've talked about this already it's very similar than in the female. We have our lumbar splanking nerves up here. They join to form the superior hypogastric plexus. This will continue as the inferior hypogastric plexus. And as we travel down, we have our pelvic splanking nerves and our sacral splanking nerves contributing to forming our subplexuses, mainly our prostatic and vesicular plexus. In the male, it's the prostatic. In the female, it's the vesicular plexus. These are mixed plexuses. Okay. Now, inferior hypogastric plexus at this point is mainly postganglionic sympathetics. Here are my pelvic splanchnics joining it. So when we move further down, it becomes a mixed plexus and contains both fibers. Keep in mind that our pelvic pain line continues in the male as well. The male has a pelvic pain line as well. So which organs would be below the pelvic pain line? The rectum in the male. What about the prostate? One of the very unfortunate things is that the prostate does not have visceral afferents for pain which is one of the reasons why prostatic cancer is asymptomatic. Okay. So there we have our sacral sympathetic chain, our sacral splanchnics, our pelvic splanchnics, and then, of course, the plexus is being formed at the end. Now, the last part. When we talked about the perineum, we talked about erection. And that was under the control of the which nervous system? Parasympathetic, yes. Now we need to talk about the next phase, and that is ejaculation. Now, ejaculation in itself has two different phases. And it's important that these phases kind of happen in sequence. Because again, what do we have up here? The internal urethral sphincter. So what happens? Sympathetic innervation promotes secretion from all of the glands, the seminal vesicles, the prostate, all of those. The contractions from the ductus deferens transfer the sperm from the testes into the same area. Right. The fluid will accumulate within 
the urethra at the prostate. Okay, it can also extend a little further down within this. And this is referred to as the bulb of the urethra. Not the bulbous urethra, but the bulb of the urethra, which is this area here. Again, under sympathetic innervation, the internal urethral sphincter contracts to close off the urethra from the bladder. This has two purposes. One, it prevents the seminal fluid to go into the bladder. And two, prevents urine from following out of the urethra during ejaculation. So the last phase here of ejaculation is the expulsion phase. And this is helped on by the rhythmic contractions of the bulbospongiosis muscle, as well as, well, most of the perineal muscles at least. This action, while the internal urethral sphincter is closed, assists in the expulsion of the semen, which contains both cells and fluid, through the rest of the urethra. Now what would happen if this internal urethral sphincter is damaged during a procedure such as TERP? During the last phase, the expulsion phase, you would have what is known as retrograde ejaculation, which means the semen actually goes into the bladder. This will cause great discomfort because the semen will then have to come out somehow and will be released gradually over time. And this can cause great discomfort. Okay, so please keep in mind that there are two reasons why it's important for us to maintain the integrity of that internal urethral sphincter. And that is it for today. I will see you guys tomorrow for some embryology.